Megan Dom is a columnist for the Los Angeles Times and the author of the best-selling essay collection, My Misspent Youth, and the critically acclaimed novel, The Quality of Life Report. She has written for many publications, including The New Yorker, Harper's, Vogue, and The New York Times. She has been a commentator for National Public Radio's Morning Edition, a contributor to This American Life, and has interviewed many guests for Socolo. Her LA Times column, which appears every Saturday on the op-ed page, was the winner of the 2006 Southern California Journalism Award in commentary. She is currently working on a book about real estate and identity, which will be published by Knopf in 2010. Please join me in welcoming Ms. Megan Dome. Thank you. And my guests are going to come up with me too. Well, I came up with the, the uh, idea for this event several months ago when it occurred to me that um, not only was I spending more time, probably spending more time reading online than on the printed page, which is a sad irony given my profession and the troubles it's suffering, um, but that I was also spending an alarming amount of time reading the comments that follow the articles and then often the comments about the comments. Um, and what characterized those comments almost always was anger. Um, people felt compelled not only to respond to the information in the article, but in most cases to scold everyone that had anything to do with it. And anger is understandable, um, because there's much to be angry about. But somehow a lot of it manifests as simple meanness, from bile-spewing blogs to gratuitously snarky customer reviews on places like Amazon.com. The internet seems to have brought out not just our inner critic, but for lack of a better word, our inner hater. So uh, to discuss some of the reasons why this may be, and to talk about the growing climate of rage and intolerance, not just on the internet, but in various arenas of real life, I'm very privileged to be in the company of my two guests tonight, Dick Meyer and Lev Grossman. Dick Meyer, to my immediate left, is the author of Why We Hate Us, American Discontent in the New Millennium. He is currently the editorial director of digital media at National Public Radio. And before that, he was editorial director of CBSNews.com, where he wrote the popular Against the Grain column. He's been a producer for the CBS Evening News with Dan Rather, a reporter for CBS Radio News, and a staff writer for Public Citizen. He is the recipient of numerous awards, including an Alfred I. DuPont Columbia University Award, and he lives in Washington, D.C. Lev Grossman is book critic and technology reporter at Time Magazine. His work has also appeared in the New York Times, Salon, Lingua Franca, Entertainment Weekly, Time Out New York, and The Village Voice. He is the author of the novels Warp, published in 1997, Codex, which was published in 2004 and was an international bestseller, and a new novel, The Magicians, which will be published in August of this year. The New York Times has called him among this country's smartest and most reliable critics. Mm -hmm. Reliable milk critics. I'm going to milk that till I die. Okay. He lives <laughs> in Brooklyn, New York. So these guys have come a long way from the snowy east to join us. Um, Lev, I thought I would start with you, because one of the reasons um, I invited you here tonight was that I remember a piece of yours um, for time that you did last summer about this subject of, of internet commenters. And um, while I'd like this discussion to expand beyond the realm of commenters, lest we fall victim to the very blandishments we're decrying, uh, I was hoping you could kind of talk a little bit about that column and, and what compelled you to write it. Yeah. Um well, when we say commenters, you know what we mean. Um, uh, uh, now, um, 
it's become the, the practice, really, of any website that puts up content of any kind to enable comments, whether it's on a YouTube video or a um, newspaper story. People are allowed, if that's the word, to react to it, to put a little, uh, a little note underneath it saying what they think about it. Um, uh, and I think some, sometime last year, I, I, I began to realize that this had, had, it, it used to be that was a special feature. Some sites did it, some sites did not. And I began to realize that it, it had reached critical mass. And now almost anything, any piece of content that you put online, people now expect to be able to comment on it. And, and things sort of accrue comments, like barnacles on the hull of a ship or something. Everything you leave up long enough, it's going gonna, it's gonna to attract a bunch of comments. Um, and what interests me about the comments is, is how incredibly hateful they are. And it's, it, 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 it's hard to tell whether uh, um, the, the commenting feature tends to attract hateful people or if we somehow become hateful when we comment. Uh, but I was astounded by the extremes of uh, anger and hatred um, uh, uh, that, these, um, that, that, that you could read and feel in these comments. I have a blog, and some of the comments on it, it took me weeks sometimes just to find out somebody who could tell me what the words meant, because they were so extreme I'd never heard them before. Uh, <laughs> and I felt terrible when I found out what they meant. They probably refer to one or two basic physical activities. Yeah, so don't, no, yeah. <laughs> it all boils down to <laughs> yeah. a, a, a few well, basic Well, I want to quote, quote from your piece, and then maybe, maybe Dick can respond to it and, and talk about your own feelings about this. Lev, you wrote in that article, the horribleness of commenters isn't really a mystery. Internet anonymity is disinhibiting, and people are basically mean anyway. Nor is it a mystery why the people who run websites put up with commenters. The economic model for internet content is based on advertising, which means it's based on traffic volume, and comments mean traffic. They're part of the things that make online publishing work. Time.com enables comments on its blogs, including mine. It's just hard to tell whether they're ruining the web faster than they can save it. Thoughts? Dan? Well, you know, there's, there's a lot of issues to unpack there, because I can address it both as an internet executive and editor at a for-profit shop, CBS News, and a non-profit shop, and also as an online columnist. It's, I would quibble a little bit with the assertion about advertising. Actually, advertisers are sort of scared of comments. It's very difficult to monetize comments because they're unpredictable and they often are nasty. And so, Advertising-wise, it's sort of it's sort of a wash. That's kind of a trivial issue. That's not the significant thing. Um, the role of anonymity is is enormous in why you get so much venom in comments. I mean, I, I don't know if there are any teachers in the audience, but generally, email is something that is dreaded by teachers um, because a parent will say something to a teacher in email that they would never, ever say to them in person. You know, you're ruining my kid's life, you nasty little weasel teacher. People don't, don't say that face to face. People don't say that when you can make eye contact. But they, but they would put that in an email to a teacher or a colleague or something. And you have the same phenomena on the internet. Now, at, at CBS, basically anybody could comment on a piece who wanted to. At NPR, we launched comments recently, just, just in uh, September, but we required that people use their real name, which is almost unheard of on the internet. And the level of, of graciousness and civility is a lot higher at npr.org 
than it was at other places because people's real name is there. So that that lack of inhibition is different. But I think the sort of you know the bigger question is, you know, w what are people doing when they're engaging when they're going online to comment? I mean, are this are they going to vent? Are they going to be part of a community? One of the weird things about the internet that we might want to talk about is that it's given the potential for anybody who so wishes to get all their news and information in one flavor if they so desire. I mean, obviously, you can get anything you want on the internet, and you could get an unbelievable array of perspectives on any single event. But what happens is people try is sort of balkanize themselves. So you have conservatives who go to Fox News and conservative websites and Rush Limbaugh's websites, and you have lefties who do the same, and you have Greens who do the same, and that suddenly the capacity for intellectual empathy atrophies. And so they, some people go online to get that kind of affirmation, and if they don't get it, they're incredibly frustrated. And you hear this assertion, you just don't get it. Well, what does that mean, you know? It means you don't agree with me. Well, I mean, one of the reasons that I asked you to come tonight, um, not only because when I was reading your book, Why We Hate Us, I was going, yes, exactly, exactly, we on like every that page. Aspect. Yes. We like that response um, to the book. That's that was my blurb, exactly. <laughs> um, was that you put a lot of this stuff in a larger political and historical context. So, I mean, I guess I'm curious to hear from both of you, is this response to the news and the, you know, the sort of homogenous way that we receive information it, it didn't exist so much in the past because everyone just kind of went to the water cooler or the corner store and talked about the news in a, in a more general way. Is, I mean, what was the sort of 19th century or even, you know, entire first half, first three quarters of the 20th century analog to this kind of media response? You want me to take a swing or you? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. I'm still, I'm still fulminating you, my swing. You Well, I think that, um, I think one thing that's changed is that, you know, the title of my book was, was Why We Hate Us. And, and the thesis was, you know, not so much that Americans hate each other or hate the idea of America or hate other people, but something has developed uh, sort of in the post-60s era where people have become to a large degree almost allergic disdainful, intolerant of many, many aspects of public culture. And hate's kind of a strong word, and it's kind of a, it's a ferocious generalization for me to say people have become intolerant of public culture. But I've done a lot of interviewing, and the public opinion research shows it pretty firmly. And that you sort of see it in two ways, uh, two, two senses of the word public. When people go out in public and they encounter, say, somebody at a quiet restaurant on a cell phone you know, yakking loudly about the details of their latest dermatologist appointment, you know, or somebody clipping their nails in Starbucks and sending little, you know, that, that's kind of, we hate that aspect of being in public. But almost everybody also hates large swaths of public culture, whether it's Hollywood, whether it's my profession, the news media, whether it's politics, the clergy, all of the, the measures in public opinion research of those sorts of things plummeted after Watergate and stayed low. Mm. So there really is a sense that we hold our, our public culture and, and our institutions in lower regard than, than we did. So I think a, a tremendous amount of that 
frustration, a sense that what is in, what the, that the public is less than the sum of us, that it doesn't reflect our priorities, our aesthetic, our values. And it's not, it's, it's not an elite thing, it's not a lefty thing. I mean, if you talk to fundamentalist Christians in Oklahoma, you know, or Hasidic Jews in Brooklyn, there's a, a similar sense that they're living in a, in a poisoned cultural environment. And I think that's where a lot of it comes from. Well, Lev, you work for a major media institution. Do, do you feel that it's poisoned? It's poisoned in what respect? Well, do you, do you sense that um, there's a public perception to you as a, as a media person, as, in a, as, a, as, as a public, you know, you're, you're operating and you're writing and you're thinking in a public realm. So I'm curious, do you get a sense that your readers are sort of poised to distrust you or hate you? You know, in certain, in certain venues, uh, I had a very bad experience a couple of years ago uh, writing a piece um, about video games. Uh, I happen to be a video gamer, a, a very ardent one. If one can be ardent about video games, one can, and I am. Uh, I've been playing video games for 30 years. I'm very much part of this subculture. Uh, and I wrote a piece, um, it was about Halo. Uh, I felt like I, I, I really, I put a lot into it. I've been, I'd been, I'd been researching it for, uh, for about a year. Uh, and the, the, the torrent of hatred that I received in response to that, uh, that piece was, was just enormous and overwhelming. Um, uh, and I, and I, I, to this day, I've been trying to figure out exactly why it was, but, but they, wouldn't take it, they wouldn't take it from somebody who works at Time. Uh, there were not factual errors in the article. There were not assertions that, that, that any average gamer uh, w wouldn't make. They didn't want to hear it from Time. And I felt like there was a sense that, that um, they felt that Time was attempting to sort of steal their culture, take something away from them uh, that was theirs. Uh, so I think there is a fundamental The wrath there. came from gamers who felt It did. That it it you came were, from the members of this particular subculture uh, who didn't want it talked about in Time. Uh, and I learned an important lesson to that, uh, about that, which is there are some things that it's very, very difficult uh, to write about you know, within the context of, uh, uh, of, a, of a major magazine. Um, when gamers meet me, they, they recognize that I'm sort of one of them, but time can never be one of them. Uh, and and, and they, they feel the rights of, to their subculture exist with them, and it, and, and, and it cannot be taken from them. So if you had been writing for a zine or some very you know, alternative publication, there would have been a different reaction. Yeah, I think that's yeah. the case. And I, it was shortly after that, actually, that I started to blog in an attempt to project somehow through this sort of hardened sphere of this, of this mega corporate <laughs> entity that I, that I represent, that I was, in fact, a human being. Uh, because it, 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 it's, uh, it's very easy to forget that, for people to forget that. I guess what I'd like to get at in this conversation is how do we as readers and as writers navigate this terrain? Because I think it's easy to fall into an us versus them way of talking about this. I mean, we've, we've kind of just done it already and I do it all the time and I think it's, it's very difficult to avoid. But when we're at a point where the writer writes something, it's probably gonna be read online, possibly by more people who are gonna read it in print, if it's even in print, and then immediately a bunch of comments go up about it, there are going to be blog posts about it, the, the piece itself becomes overwhelmed, potentially, by the comments. Is that something that we as writers have to just get over? Is it even within our rights to complain about it? Should we, you know, as on some level, far be it, we should be happy that people are reading and responding. Is it, is it a sort of obscene argument in a way? I mean, how do you, do you have these conversations with yourself? Because I, I, clearly I do. <laughs> I'm having it right now. I mean, how do, you, how do you kind of justify this 
I'll just have it with myself if you don't have any response. I, you know, I mean, I would say it's a free country, and... Well, there I disagree with you. You, you do? Yeah. <laughs> okay, I take it back. You're really right. But there are plenty of places to write, if you so desire, where people can't comment on your work. I mean, there really are. You can, where? Uh, do you have a list? You, you can write a novel. That's right, because done. nobody will you read it. You can write a book, <laughs> right? You, you can write in that dead art, which, which all of us seem you know, devoted to. Um, look, I could not have written the book that I published last year, Why We Hate Us, without my readers and without the commenters. Because I, I was playing with ideas in a series of columns about a certain kind of cultural and social change that I think was going on in the country. And I, I literally was able to do a cross-country sampling of what people thought because I could read their comments on my piece and I could engage with them in email. So I really test-marketed ideas in, in a way that would have been impossible in any kind of reporting, um, you know, physical reporting, going around the country. I emailed and corresponded and, and read the comments of a tremendous number of people. But did you feel that, that it was a representative sample? Because there's a type of comment that no. comes from the crazies. No, but, but it w of course it wasn't. I mean, there's a certain kind of person that's never going to leave a comment or do an email. But I do know that it was sort of ideologically and philosophically diverse because for every single column I wrote, I was condemned from the left, condemned mm -hmm. from the right, and then generally just con condemned for being a moron. You know, I mean, and that happens, that happens. So no, it's not representative. But it was, it, it was also a rather in-depth way to have a kind of dialogue. I mean, I, I don't think that the ability to... I, I also don't think the journalists should ever be in the position of saying people shouldn't be able to talk about our work and do so publicly. I mean, I think if you believe in the First Amendment, you believe in the First Amendment. And I think that, it, that it's wrong to, to take a position where we will not allow readers into our forums. I, I, if people think that, and there are plenty, I would say stick to those forums. But I don't think it has the capacity to pollute journalism. Um, for people who, you know, you, if you have a blog and other formats like that, I mean, it's just, it's interesting to think about wha why people and why so many of us want to, to use a, a word that, that I swiped from you, overshare. Oh, overshare. It's, you know, I, it's I can't a, take credit for that word, it's but it's overshare. A, but it, but it's, a, it's a great concept. I mean, if you're going to really, if, if you're going to put a well-crafted essay or piece of journalist, journalism out in the, in the public realm, I think it should be commented on. If you're going to be blogging and sort of putting yourself out in a way that arguably is an act of narcissism or exhibitionism, then you're getting into some pretty tricky psychological ground. Although there is, a, you know, there's sort of an inequity. Uh, to get back to the anonymity thing, you're putting your name on what you write, um, and these people aren't, which I think is a vast, is a vast divide. It's, a, it, it's very strange. The situation we find ourselves in is very strange. When the web was created, and even the internet, going back to the 60s, it wasn't created as a social medium. It wasn't created as a, as a, as a medium for people to interact with one another. Uh, it was created as a tool for researchers to share, uh, share information. And uh, had the people who set it up, who wrote its original protocols, which are sort of essentially analogous to the Constitution, realized that they were creating a vast community of human beings, they probably would not have done it the way they did it. Um, 
the, the fact is the, the founding sort of principles of, uh, of, of the internet include, um, include anonymity, um, and it's just a terrible thing. I mean, it severs people from any of the consequences that come from making a public statement. Uh, you, you can't really go after their right to make these statements um, uh, because it's just so totally important that people be allowed to express themselves publicly. Um, but the, it's, 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 it's taken as a right that people do not have to reveal who they are. And I think uh, uh, that's, that was a fundamental mistake that people made when they set up the internet originally. But I, I sort of think you've touched on, a, uh, on the million dollar question, which is, which is the, the deeper question, because commenting on the schmutz that we professional journalists put out is, is only one activity that people do online. And it pales in comparison to things people do online with Facebook, Twitter, MySpace, Amazon, all of those kinds of things. And there is, I think, a, f a fabulously interesting sociological question, which, which I get into in my book, which is, can the kind of virtual social contact that people have, you know, belonging to some kind of uh, virtual community that's interested in Portuguese water dogs, uh, whatever, whatever, whatever now. it actually is now <laughs> that the Obamas, can that provide what, what sociologists call social capital? Can e-contact provide the kinds of things that homo sapiens need for social nourishment? You know, mm -hmm. intimacy, true communication, because all of these things, I think, are ways in which, I mean, to, uh, people who tend to be rather lonely in a country that is ferociously mobile and anonymous and big in a lot of ways, are, are they're trying to communicate. They're trying to get their voices heard. They're trying to get their Andy Warhol. They're trying to exist in a media realm, and they're trying to communicate and make contact. And I don't know if that's possible without the way humans have traditionally done it in human history, which is looking each other in the eye. Well, the whole notion of who is a friend has changed dramatically. The, it's almost like the word itself needs to be redefined in the dictionary. It's a currency. It's not a friend. It's something, depending on your generation, I suppose. Not, none of us, because we're a little bit too old, but there's a hoarding mentality that goes on. But I wonder if we're in a, in a transitional time with this, because it seems to me that it's like the Wild West right now, and people mm. haven't really figured out how to behave and how this kind of behavior makes them feel. I feel sometimes like we're right on the cusp, like people are starting to say, oh, you know, I don't know if I like Facebook so much. I don't know if, I, if, I, if it makes me feel, I don't like the way I feel when I give a status update every 10 minutes. And is this something that we're gonna kind of go over to the other side and, and settle into ourselves? You know, I, I'm of two minds about this. I want to believe that that's the case. Uh, the web is, is still relatively young was created in 91, sort of didn't go mainstream to the late 90s. I, I, my, uh, what I want to hope is that the web is evolving uh, and that a, a set of sort of social, social conventions will, will, will evolve uh, uh, for these kinds of interactions, which are new interactions in human history that have never occurred before. Uh, and in fact, that uh, uh, the web will be, will be civilized. I do not know if, uh, if that's the case or not. Um, uh, one hopes that it will evolve uh, but I haven't seen it evolving lately. I feel like the solution uh, and the future of the web is something like Facebook. I'm very, very pro-Facebook. Um, not only because people are, tend not to be anonymous on Facebook, um, I mean, you have to give a name, people generally give their real name, but also that there is, a, that there is social context on Facebook. Um, 
the, the way in which you know somebody uh, uh, is generally speaking, you understand what your relationship is to them. You understand how you're linked, who you know in common. You're sort of embedded in that social matrix which allows you to behave properly uh, and not be a jerk. Uh, and I actually, my experiences on Facebook have been great. Uh, I think people behave themselves, uh, and I love it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can you maybe both talk a little bit about how it was different to be a writer and a journalist before all this stuff was around as opposed to how it is now? I mean, I often think to myself, if comment boards and blogs had been around when I started writing and publishing, I would have written differently. I might have been scared off. I might have not had the stomach for certain kinds of feedback. Um, I'm of a generation that's probably not as thick-skinned as the current ones. Do you ever think about that kind of thing? What was, the, what was just the process of writing and thinking like back when you started versus now? Maybe it's not any uh, much different. I don't think it's affected my work at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just, you know, when I'm writing a piece, when I'm editing a piece, when I'm making selections about what NPR.org is going to lead with and a lineup of pieces, the, the sort of commenting about it, you know, in, in, unless it's about the Armenian genocide or autism, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not particularly worried about it. Um, and I don't think it's a factor for any of my staff. I mean, I think there's a, a a, a great feeling that that's just part of it and people have the right. It's not that different than letters to the editor once once were. Now, it, certainly in my career, it, I had to spend a lot of time during, doing hard news, doing a lot of shoe leather reporting, doing, it took a long time for me to get my byline and for me to be able to have the privilege in the journalism world of expressing anything like an opinion. Um, you know, in the early parts of my career, the idea that that you know a junior reporter for CBS could have a blog, it, it would be absurd. You know, I had to I had to you know stake out politicians for 15 years before it was done. But I, I wouldn't exaggerate that. I I don't think it's a profound difference. Hmm. Lev, do you find yourself pre-commenting on yourself as you write? You know what, uh, I do, and I have to say it. it, it uh, they got to me. They got to me, and I write different now. Really? I, I, I don't know if you We like have support groups for, for that. <laughs> <laughs> it's too late. Save The people who deprogram the Moonies, they can help you. <laughs> I don't know if, if you guys are, are, are aware of, this, of a site uh, called Gawker. Yeah. Um, it's, it's New York-centric. Uh, I think they had uh, an L.A. Ba uh, version Defamer called Defamer. Defamer is the L.A. version. Yeah. Which I think has now been folded back into Gawker. Um, uh, uh, I think just recently they, 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 they sort of smushed them together. Uh, I was. Uh, uh, I think the inflection point came when I when I was personally mocked on Gawker. I mean, everybody who's on Gawker, who has on Gawker, is being mocked. Um, but I was too trivial for a long time, uh, and I'm still pretty trivial. But uh, there was a time when they singled me out and they mocked me. And uh, yeah, there's a little Gawker dude. There's a Gawker in my head, and I think about I, I, when I'm when I when I'm writing something. Uh, I'm not going to lie to you. I run it by him. I get his feedback. Uh, and I think, all right, I'm going to build that into what I'm writing because uh, I want it to be Gawker-proof. Um, I've, I've God, never I met somebody with a little Gawker living in their head. That's <laughs> yeah, you can see that's it. It's, it's, uh, yeah, oh, yeah, I see just, it. That's yeah. great. That's nice. But that's really sad in a way. It's it's because you're it's it's censoring. You're censoring yourself. You know what? I don't think it is. Mm -hmm. I don't think it is sad. Um, uh, I thought about this a lot. Uh, uh, I used to study the 18th century when I was uh, back when I was respectable as a in grad school. Um, 
And what we've got, it's, it's very 18th century what's going on right now. Um, uh, there was a time when, uh, when in, in the community, for example, in London of writers and readers was small enough, you just got a newly minted middle class, everybody was learning to read, uh, you'd also figured out uh, how to use industrial processes to print large numbers of magazines like the, Ch the Tatler cheaply. Basically, everybody was a, was a writer and everybody was a reader. You wrote for the magazines, you read for the magazines. There was, this, there, was, there, was, there was no such thing. There wasn't a separation of writer and reader anymore. They became radically divided, I think, uh, in the 19th and 20th centuries. I wonder if, if what we're seeing is, isn't just a return to the norm. And that period when writers and readers were radically different, uh, writers were seen to be sort of a different class for a long time, until the 70s, time didn't even run bylines. You know, you, had to, you didn't have to sort of, you, it just came down from on high. I think in a way this is a, this is a correction back to, possibly back to how things were originally. Well, it is interesting that as people who write opinion, mm. you're then faced with an audience who are also opinion makers. Everybody has an opinion. It's like everyone is a critic. But perhaps what happens is that people forget that those of you who are doing this professionally have editors, you have rewrites, you have fact checkers, you have at least a spell checker, which some of these, you know, some other people don't have. And again, without turning this into an us versus them, without getting into that sort of tone, how would you, as an, as an editor, isn't there another way to sort of display, display an article versus the comments where it's not, where they're not literally adjacent? I mean, I often sort of see this as a design problem even. Mm. It's really, like, I can't tell you how many times I've read a piece on Salon, for instance, that, you know, it's maybe a 1,500-word essay, and there are 1,500 comments, and I've spent... 12 times the amount of time reading people's comments and then I've forgotten what the piece is about. And I think that's a tremendous disservice to the writer. But that's also your choice. And, <laughs> and, and the, truth, the truth is most people don't. Oh, they you know, don't? Yeah. Most people don't read the comments. I mean, it's a very closed community. And in, in fact, you could, I mean, most, most online readers are, are pretty oblivious to the comments. It's, it's kind of an echo chamber. It's, it, it boosts traffic a little bit, but for, for most people it's not. If you're not participating in it, most people slide by it. And, and you know, there's something called banner blindness, uh, a phrase we use where y you might not even see the whole right rail on a website because you know there are going to be ads there and they're going to be schlocky ads. I read all those ads. I, read, I spend it. 12 hours a day reading those ads. We also have support groups for people mm. like you. <laughs> Yeah, Lev, are you? Can you help me with this? Are you? Do <laughs> <I laughs> uh, you want me to back you up? Uh, I mean, no. I just there, there is. Do, do you ever find yourself frustrated with li the literally the layout of the layout on the screen, with the way the um, the way the reader feedback sort of bleeds over into the piece? Yeah. Well, uh, time. Actually, we don't have comments yet. Uh, it's only a matter of time, as it were. How many times have I made that pun? Um, uh, before we set up comments, we don't have them right now. Uh, I do have them on, on my blog. I don't know. Uh, they're, I mean, they're, they're, they're set off. It is a design issue. It, but I think the design issue, I mean, they're set off. You can see. Uh, I wish people's real names were, were associated with them. But otherwise... You could insist on that at a time. That's what we did at NPR, and it's effective. I mean, you could... I mean, I would suggest lobbying for that. Yeah. It really does up the discourse substantially. Yeah. 
Do they get edited though? Do you actually no. edit them? And does time? Oh, you don't. You no. haven't done them yet. Because we have a very elaborate way that that users. We call it a narc button. Users can protest a, a comment that they find offensive or inappropriate, and that will flag it to our attention immediately. So mm. we're monitoring it, mm -hmm. but I, I, I personally don't believe that journalists should be in the business of censorship, pre-censorship at all. I mean, clearly there are standards of hate speech, obscenity, that we're not going to tolerate at all. And the, the, the rules of conduct that we've put up on NPR are really, you know, they're what, what you would expect of NPR. Um, and, and I think it's, it's a pretty positive experience. So, I really do. So your commenter community is self-policing. Self uh, they, 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 they flag an inappropriate post. Yeah, and they do a very good job of it, too. That's encouraging. Yeah. Yeah. Um, There's, you know, we don't have hate speech. You know, you have things that you disagree with, but it's, you know, overall, I think it's, I, I think it's a good service to our community. I mean, the fascinating thing that we found at NPR and I don't believe this is true of any other media site that, that, or, or news site that I know of. We launched the, uh, the ability to comment and, and do what's called social media functions on our site in September. And we found that more NPR people want to talk to each other on the site than comment on stories. So NPR users can, can set up profile pages and one of the really unique things about NPR in the broadcast news universe right now is that it's a loyal audience. I mean, the reason the media landscape is changing so much is newspaper circulation is going like that, magazine circulation is going like that, cable network news going like that, NPR is going like this. And so you meet people who, who will describe themselves as an NPR person, right? You know, they'll take out an ad in the want ad saying, NPR person, dog lover, loves water sports, seeking same. You know, you do not see ABC news person, cigar smoker, likes to beat up, you know, uh, seeking same. And so it, 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 is, it is providing a, a point of social contact for people. Now, back to my question, is that real social contact? Is it sustaining social contact? I'm skeptical. I mean, I, I really am. I, I, I don't think that it can replace organic community. But... Organic community in America is a very, very difficult thing to come by. Very few people live where they grew up. Very few people live near extended family. Very few people live near people who they have multi-generational -gener relationships with. And so people do need that kind of contact. That's the deepest worry that I have. Not to um, lower this discussion to a level we might not want to go to, but I do want to talk a little bit about Nadia Suleiman, the octuplet mother, and here's why. Here's why. I actually, yeah. I, I want to talk about this in the context of the evolution of a rage spectacle. I mean, we really have th the intersection of, of, you know, schadenfreude, voyeurism, uh, hate. I don't think that's too strong a word. Um, media exploitation, I, the level of, of just, you know, jaw-dropping fascination and just vitriol, not only with, com I mean, the comments became a genre unto themselves when it came to Octomom, as they're calling her, but just blogs and even the way, um, you know, legitimate news interviews have taken a tone of s incredible disgust around this woman. I'm curious what you think how, how you think this might have played out 
in a pre-internet era? Would she have gone away? Would would there have been? Because I really feel like this demonstrates the way rage just gets stirred up. I don't think we would be this angry if we weren't witnessing everyone else's anger. It is very interesting. Um, uh, uh, I didn't really participate in the Octomom frenzy because her. It's huge, not too late. It's still huge, going on. <laughs> her huge swollen belly just made me feel weird. But you know, I think we really. I mean. We really underrate, I think, and haven't talked enough about how, how enjoyable anger is. Uh, <laughs> no, seriously. There's a reason why people That's engage... That's ridiculous. <laughs> That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And uniting. There's a reason why people, yes. uh, people in, in, in indulge in this behavior. And I say people because I have to include myself. I'm not above it at all. It's incredibly empowering. Uh, it's, it's, it's inc- you, you, this, the Internet is a place where it's, sort of, it's very democ- democratic. It's very flat. No one is really distinguished from each other in terms of status. Uh, uh, and I think that there's a tremendous need to feel better than, uh, than other people. Uh, it just feels so damn good. And there aren't very many other ways to, to do it these days. Um, so when people get a little taste of that, um, and I emphatically include myself in this, uh, they just go for more. It's addictive. Uh, to, to me, the, uh, the Octomom is just the latest in a kind of serial celebrity obsession. And it's not necessarily, uh, to, to me, the defining mark uh, of this phenomenon is not so much rage, but there is always an it person who we obsess about in this public venue, whether it's Anna Nicole Smith. Um, now, I'm sensitive because I'm actually an octuplet. I have seven. Oh my god, Yeah, I'm sorry. I mean, it's, no, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> But it's, you know, whether it's Paris Hilton or Britney Spears or, you know, it, it's, it's, there is somebody who the culture needs to devour at any point in time. And that's an odd thing. And it's, it, it has to do with the cult of celebrity. But people get very, very animated about their feelings for people they've never met. I mean, why would you really get angry at Paris Hilton or Octomom? You've never met her. It's, they're a stranger. It's a funny thing. So one of the cognitive weird things that's happening in our society today that I think we don't have, you know, as social scientists and neuroscientists, we don't have a handle on is the amount of information that we get in a day that's mediated, that is, that is not directly observed like the way I... I can look in your eyes, but comes to us through some sort of device, whether it's a BlackBerry, a screen of some sort, is phenomenally high. And that's really, as as Love suggested, that's really different than human history. And I think that distorts a lot of our emotional buttons. But I have to say that I think the fascination and the the feelings around the octuplet mom are not quite the same as the feelings around... Paris Hilton. I would almost equate it with the feelings people had around Sarah Palin are a little bit more, I think that might be a better analogy. And, and not even, you know, Sarah Palin did have supporters. I, the octuplet mom, I think, maybe has one at this but point. There, but there, there have been or many. Eight. Like one of my, one of, one, yeah, right, one 14. of my favorites was Lizzie Grubman, which mm. Lizzie Grubman might have been more of an East Coast thing, but Lizzie Grubman was a PR lady in um, PR young lady in, uh, in New York, very, very wealthy family, very wealthy father, and she went out partying in the Hamptons, 
and she wanted to get into a, a, a particular club. Many of you, I'm sure, remember this. And the bouncer said, no, you can't get in. It's too crowded. And furthermore, you have to move your car. And she said, you know, no white trash is going to tell me what to do. She got in her Mercedes SUV and backed into eight people, almost killing a couple of them. And we spent a lot of time hating her. Yeah, well, and, and this is what I was getting at. I think that there are certain hot-button issues that will cause this rage. Class, I think class issue is huge. Anything that has to do with money or class, I think, infuriates people in a way. Or they feel they have license to be really mean about it in a way that they would maybe be a little more um, hesitant if it, was, if it was race or gender or something like that. I mean, what Sarah Palin and the octuplet mom and Lizzie Grubman all brought into this were issues of class. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, we have to take questions in a few minutes, but what are the, are there any topics when you're writing that you say, I know this is gonna get, I know I'm gonna get some, generate some buzz or some heat because I'm s touching on such and such. Are there certain issues that you know will do it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, whenever, um, I happen to think that the gun control laws in America are illogical. When I write about that, I absolutely know it's going to enrage people. And the last time I did it at CBS, it actually shut down the switchboards at CBS headquarters in, in, on 57th Street in New York. Um, there, there are a bunch of hot button things like that. One of the horrifying innovations of Gawker, uh, which I, 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 I will say in defense, it's, 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 it's an astoundingly well-written site, very funny, uh, consistently witty. Um, uh, but the, uh, the, uh, the people who write for it get a bounty. Uh, the, they track how many, how many hits their posts get, and they get more money based on the post, which, uh, which you know, uh, uh, leads to this sort of amazing lowest common denominatorism, uh, which you just, you know, it's like a model for the culture as a whole, and you can just see us uh, heading directly into the abyss um, based on that. I want to I touch on the, on the class issue really quickly because uh, I, I find it incredibly fascinating. It's another aspect in which... Um, uh, 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 you have to look at the internet as a society that was that's based on this founding protocol. It's essentially its constitution. It is a network, um, and this is one of the things that we celebrated ab ab about it in the '90s that we loved. The, the The internet is flat. It consists of nodes on a network. Every node is equal to every other node. Isn't this fantastic? It's the new utopia because no one's better than anybody else. Turns out we're not very well set up to live in utopia. <laughs> we really, really need to know who's, uh, who, who's here and who's here. There's some part in our lizard brain that really can't tolerate that uncertainty. Um, and I feel like there's an enormous, there's a, there's an enormous urge to just, to just put up your hand and say, okay, wait, that octomom, uh, I'm not perfect, but my life is, is going, it's a little bit, I've made some good decisions, <laughs> and Octomom has made some bad decisions. Um, it's just, you, you need it so badly. Um, final thing, before I came out here, um, I, 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 um, I, there was something nagging at my conscience, and I realized what it is. It's a, it was a post that I wrote in 1994, when I'd first gotten on Usenet, you know, Usenet is the sort of news groups, um, I realized I, I'd spent a lot of time writing about this issue, and, and I kind of had gotten into this mindset where I was sort of, uh, I was above it, I was the civil one, you know, I was the cultured one, and these people were just giving into their base urges. I wrote the most horrific flame in 1994. Disgusting. I spent 20 minutes on Google trying to find the guy that I'd flamed, so I could apologize to him, because uh, 
I feel like my my internet um, karma won't be won't be right till it happens. But this this is a this is this a is going to be podcast though. So you just apologize. Oh man, <laughs> listen, I'm so sorry. You know, it just it, well, it was it was the early days, the wild west, and it just got to me. That urge, I think everybody has it, and and no one's above it. Don't worry, President Clinton had a thick skin. I think he recovered. I don't know. He never. <laughs> he just. I feel like he was crying inside. Okay, yeah. <laughs> okay we're going to take questions from you guys. Good. Thank you. Uh, we will now begin our Q&A portion of our interview tonight, and we would want to remind you that this is being recorded for both video and audio podcasts, so all questions must be asked into the microphone. Uh, just wait for a Sokolo staff to get to you, and if you could please state your first and last name before your question. Also, at this time, our donation buckets will be going around, and we do appreciate any and all of your support. Thank you. My name is David Trilling, and um, I, first of all, I, I agree with the, 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 the comment of the gentleman in the middle. I, I do I do make comments myself on sub websites, but it's a lot of communication amongst people. It, to me, it's an elite issue, much more than a widespread issue. What I was expecting more of a discussion about, however, was some of the, the some of the, the scarier aspects like the cyberbullying and impl implications from like cell phone use and people not being used to not realizing um, what they're the, the messages they're sending, like the parents to the teachers. Um, I was wondering whether you feel that the media has some role in educating the public on, uh, on certain rules of thumb on how they should behave uh, in some fashion. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. Um, it, I, I don't know exactly how that would come to pass, but I think that sites that do allow that kind of open discourse should be very transparent in what the rules are for participating and should be very consistent and trans yeah, transparent in enforcing those rules. Um, and, you know, I think those, uh, those of us who approach journalism with a little bit of anthropologist, uh, sociologist, and moral tutor should be very, you know, tuned into that. But again, uh, most of this activity is taking place in things far away from, from journalism and in, in other places where people gather on the internet. So I think that's sort of a limited role for, 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 for journalists. My name is Lana Berman. Um, I think it's interesting you brought up Sarah Palin because I was never angry by, by almost anything going on in society. And then suddenly Sarah Palin and high fructose corn syrup happened in the same week, <laughs> the commercials. And I got on a small blog and um, Facebook and as soon as I found out other people were angry, I kind of let it go and let them be angry for me. And I was wondering if that is somehow also a trend. Because I felt like, well, I'm, my little anger isn't going to really help much. So I kind of let people who were really serious about being angry take over for me. <laughs> I didn't know if that was normal or not, but it made me feel better. Well, I, th I, mean, I think Lev partly addressed that, which is it can be fun to be angry. But in, you know, there are obviously many stresses in American society today, and many of them have to do with our, um, our mobility and, and a certain kind of an, an anonymity that people have, not just because they can be online, but because they live in communities very often where they're not well known. And so the kinship that can come from hating something can be very, very strong. And that's why, you, you, you know, in, a, lo in a, a lot of balkanized communities on the web, they're all about um, 
defining themselves in contradistinction and in hostility to other groups. You know, it's kind of, it's kind of tribal, which you would expect because we're kind of tribal. It is. I was happy to get rid of it. Well, you found that I, as a way to sort of, sh you know, others it, carried yes. it and it got you out of, yeah, that, yeah, well, that's... I felt no joy in the anger I was Yeah, more it, that's a good thing. Actually. It is a big release when you realize that, that, that uh, you, you have that instant where you're just like, does nobody else see this? I mean, it, it, it's just astounding that nobody else sees it. And then slow, that slow relief when you realize that somebody's on this. <laughs> yeah, that was a bad week that week. Hi, my name's uh, Sean Lepowski, and I have a question about the uh, NPR site and the comment system. You said you had, um, you encourage people to use their real names. You have some sort of system for, for I guess, validating that. Uh, and it improved the, the level of discourse. People were more civil. I spent a lot of time on a website called Reddit, where basically yeah. all the content is user-generated. You right. know, they submit their own links, and then there are thousands of comments. Nobody really moderates that, but they do use a voting system. So although there's still certainly hateful comments, the witty comments, the funny comments, the insightful and the intelligent ones always find their way to the top. So right. if you are going to read, you know, in that first five, ten comments, you get the best ones. Have you guys considered implementing a system like that to at least get the best of the best? Yeah, we absolutely have. And we're, you know, we're it's, it's really just a matter of uh, a perennial obstacle on the NPR world, which would be money. Um, but the, what, what Reddit and Digit and, and places like that do is that the comments that are most viewed and given a thumbs up to in some way rise to the top. And that's, a, you know, that's kind of a neat and democratic and sort of a meritocracy way of doing that. And I think that's really neat, and I, I hope we can do that. There's, there's one other point about it, too, is that you know, you're, you're getting all this criticism from, from, or praise from the left and right, and you're feeling all this pressure. And some it, the examples given even change the way you, you wrote with the gawker in your head. Well, the nice thing about the moderation systems is these people are experiencing those same forces as well because you know they're being commented on when they're being voted up or down, and they sort of know how you're feeling, especially if you know they're getting dug down a lot. So the pressure's on them as well, and I think that encourages them to do better, at least spell check their work. <laughs> well, yeah, and I think the people, you know, when people find um, their work is, is gratifying to others, it's gratifying to them. When their comments rise up, they like it, and, and it's an incentive for for good contributions. I don't know if you read the site, Slashdot. They have a, a, a tech news site. They have a great system where not only can you moderate comments, but there's a meta-moderation system whereby you moderate moderators. You look around who's doing good moderating, you rate them up, and then somehow their word becomes more powerful. Uh, uh, I can't tell if that's absolute genius or just um, uh, web 2.0 insanity, but uh, it seems to work for them. Yeah. My name is Sandra Cowling. And this is regarding Octomom. Uh, my personal feelings are that she already had six children. She's living with her parents whose house is being foreclosed on. Uh, there's been child abuse. And then she chooses to have eight embryos uh, implanted. And, and the doctor even asked her. I think they're even upset that the doctor would do such a thing. So, I mean, I'm kind of, you know, enraged about that, and I can understand why a lot of people are, because, I mean, I'm thinking of the children, not Octomom. I, I, you're proving my point. I want you to go everywhere with me and just <laughs> validate what I say. Yeah, you're, this is a perfect example. I think people, people are enraged over this. But, I mean, I was actually, I was interested, these are all valid points, although I think she had only six embryos implanted and two split, for the record. But... 
Yeah, I mean, there, it, that, that particular case, like Sarah Palin, I think touches on a number of very volatile issues and it's sort of a perfect storm of rage. Um, and, and that's why I mentioned it. But yes, you are, you are living proof of this phenomenon, so. <laughs> Hi, uh, this is a great talk. I'm glad you guys are addressing all this. My name's Eris Blevins. Um, I have one comment on uh, the NPR side. I know you guys can probably have continuous money issues in terms of R&D, but it seems like this is a paper you guys should be putting out there. I know this is something that the web development community is really interested in, in different comment systems that work, and that's it's something that people aren't really putting a lot of effort into developing new systems. So if you have something where you're validating real names and that's that has provable st statistics in terms of giving usable dialogue through your users. I think that's something you guys should you should profit on and put out there to the tech community for sure. Um, but I also was wondering what you guys all think about trolls and sort of the 4chan uh, anarchist community that sort of started to rise up. I know the New York Times did a piece about it. I don't know if you guys have heard about this whole community. I did a piece about 4chan. Um uh, I, I'm fascinated by 4chan. Uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the site. Uh, it's an enormously, enormously popular uh, message board site. Uh, it's unusual in, in that, in that uh, it's, a, it's an image board. People are encouraged to post images as well as text. It also has no registration system whatsoever. So uh, uh, not only do you, have, do you not have to use your real name, you don't even have to, to register. And it's just fascinating. Some of the content on 4chan is just just absolutely foul. I mean, really, really worrying amounts of, of, of porn and, uh, and uh, hate speech and stuff like that. And yet, oddly, it's very fertile community in a way. A lot of memes, a lot of, uh, of the jokes that sort of spread around the internet, like Rick Rolling and uh, Lolcats started on, on 4chan. Uh, it's, a, it's a funny paradox, really. It's the worst of the worst, and yet it's, weirdly, it's a weirdly generative um, site that actually, you know, Humor and wit come out of uh, it. Sort of, uh, it, it, it sort of um, represents a paradox that uh, uh, it's kind of I haven't f figured out how to solve. Uh, my name is Josh Weiss. I'm curious to hear a little bit about how you think all this anger and rage is manifesting in our brick and mortar uh, world here in the real world and in our daily interactions outside of the internet. Dick, it's your. Well, I mean, I, th uh, I, I think the basic way is what I alluded to earlier, is that there's a profound disgust, repugnance, and defensiveness towards the culture in, in general. And I think it's, you know, on the political front, it's now been 40 years since there was any kind of generalized trust that was bestowed upon the major institutions and in government and the leaders of those institutions. And arguably, you could say that there has been really no profound, enduring landmark legislation akin to the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act of the 1960s since then. I mean, I don't know what legislation has passed since the 1960s that in 125 years people will be able to refer to very quickly. So, I mean, that's, that's just sort of one example, but I, I think the sense that there's something toxic in the culture and that people are wary and mistrustful of it, it, it actually hampers our ability to live in a society and solve solvable problems, and it's an inhibitor to the way that homo sapiens procure happiness in life. I mean, one of the things, you can quibble about the measures of happiness, and they're obviously, happiness is not something that you can plot on a graph. 
yet sociologists have been trying to do that, and they've done it in a consistent way since when the time when public opinion research began in between the world wars. And it, it's, it's undeniable that as our material well-being has improved in this country, and in fact in all Western industrialized democracies since the middle of the 20th century, our spiritual well-being has not. You know, we've become more long-lived, less infant mortality, better fed, better health care, yada, 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 more life choices of all sorts. All of that's gone like that. But the, the way that we measure our contentments and our satisfaction have not. There was a good book written by a guy named Greg Easterbrook called The Progress Paradox. And I think a lot of this has to do with the way we perceive our community and our culture. What, what worries me is that the anger is so uh, uh, relentlessly focused on, on trivia, uh, on the kind of things we've been talking about, on cell phone you know, protocol violations, on my latest blog post, on sort of petty, uh, petty social errors. Uh, it, somehow it's become severed from any kind of progressive <coughs> social agenda. There was a time when there was righteous anger in this country uh, that was directed toward worth, worthy causes, uh, and that time seems to have passed. I, I think, I mean, that's like another million dollar question. I think what happened was, and again, I'm just putting out a pet theory that's in my book, uh, available on a <laughs> table near you. But I mean, there was something very, very mysterious about the way the idealism of the 1960s morphed into the narcissism of, of the 1970s, which was you know, nailed in one phrase by Tom Wolfe when he called the 1970s the me decade, but then really nailed again in a wonderful book um, that came out in, in 73 or 74, The Culture of Narcissism by Christopher Lash. I mean, somehow that idealism became a form of selfism, and, and, and that's really been an unacknowledged problem in this society, particularly, I think, by the left. But there's also, I, well, we're going to take more questions, don't worry, but there's a, there's a tonal element to this, too. I mean, don't you find that in, in the postmodern age, say since, since the 60s or 70s, the sort of default setting for speech and attitude is one of pessimism, of irony, of sort of tongue-in-cheek, and that is, that sort of, that, that ambiance seeps into the discourse. It's really, it's, it's very much a matter of presentation as well. Do you not agree? I mean, there were, you know, sort of before this level of it, there was a, you know, there was a, a fairly well-known movie called Network, where Howard Bill screamed, "I'm mad as hell, and I'm not going to take it," you know. And I sort of, I t put a twist on that in the book. I said, well, "I'm mad as hell, and I'm going to keep taking it on the chin," <laughs> and that's sort of the posture that we're in right now. I mean, I, on the other hand, I, I do see in, you know, I'm. I'm far older than you two, much, 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 much older. But in the, you know, I, I, I see in, in younger people, um, and, and I think this is kind of represented in, in Obama in a way, a, a really kind of can-do post-ideological optimism that really isn't driven so much by anger. And it's, 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 it's odd for me because it does not have the accoutrements of the kind of political idealism that I grew up around. Mm -hmm. You know, I grew up around older siblings who were trying to get out of Vietnam and race riots, you know, all around my house. It, it, it was obvious what political idealism is now. It is not 
obvious to me what the political idealism is of college students now. It's not obvious to me how a young generation you know, could look at the war in Iraq and there, there were no protests of any, of any sort, certainly compared to, to earlier times. But on the other hand, I, I do recognize, you know, there's this phrase that's come up called social entrepreneur, which I really think captures a, a lot of what is hopeful of the Obama generation. So I'm, I'm not, you know, I, I, I don't actually possess any optimistic genes, but I'm not, I'm not that pessimistic in that regard. Hi, my name is Todd Kerner. Like you, Megan, I also think that reading the comments are part and parcel of surfing the web. And I visit a lot of websites, and the one that stands out for me that has a particularly robust comment section that is extremely well moderated is the Washington Note, which Steve Clemens hosts for the New America Foundation. And he specializes in Middle East-type topics, which, as you can guess, spons uh, espouses a lot of um, heated discussion. But he pops up at least once a day and comments on the comments. And I think his presence is a calming force and a moderating force. And I wonder how each of you handle your comment section, and if you pop up and say, hey, this is appropriate, or this is not appropriate, or this is correct, or this is why I said what I said. I think it's, it's become part of what a journalist does to, <clears throat> to mix it up. Uh, I think, I really think writers do have to get in there, and that's part, it, it's become, it what didn't used to be part of the job, and now it's part of the job, uh, is, is to accord people the respect um, uh, of, um, uh, of responding to their opinions about, about what, what, you've, uh, what you've written. And I, it does have a good effect. Uh, uh, I feel like people respond to being treated with that kind of respect. They don't feel look, looked down upon. They want to come back. Uh, the, the level of discourse raises. Uh, uh, yeah, it's a great thing. But I, and I think it's no longer an option for people to, um, to sort of sit in the ivory tower. Ditto, ditto. <laughs> I mean, it's... It, if you're not willing to participate in the comments, then frankly you're doing it um, for exploitive reasons, because you want to get the traffic up or you're just not interested. It, the only way to do it with any kind of integrity is to participate yourself. It can be very time consuming. You know, it can be very tough, especially for beat reporters and people were beaten up, you know, to, to file a lot. It can be very difficult, but it's very, very important and we encourage our folks to do it. I remember th there was a writer at time who responded to it. This is sort of, it must have been in the 80s, who responded to a letter from a reader saying, um, uh, I would answer your question if I didn't think that you were too, s if, I, if, I, if, if I thought you were smart enough to understand the answer. Something like that. And he was like a legend for, for getting off this line, you know, uh, uh, which just sort of, we were like, yeah, you smacked down that reader. That's, you don't do that anymore. Uh, that's, that's not how it works anymore. Helen Hill, and I have three things. I'll make them really fast. We grew up, we had pen pals. And I look at Facebook and those other things like pen pals. Two, you didn't really address sock puppets, the nature of commenters to take on different personas and simply obliterate and commandeer a comment section for their own purposes or their own needs. Um, I'm kind of curious about that. And lastly, uh, were you named after Tropic Thunder? <laughs> Tom Cruise's character, Les Grossman. 
You know, <laughs> I've been asked that question, and I haven't quite figured out what happened there. Um, uh, I haven't seen the movie, but I, as I understand, it's not an especially flattering uh, homage. Um, yes, disturbing. Um, the sock puppet thing is interesting. Uh, um, it's part of anonymity, really. It's, it's, it's when, the, when the internet was founded, uh, it, it was sort of... It, everybody was really into anonymity. Like, yay, everybody, can, we can reinvent ourselves online. Uh, if you're a dude and you want to be a chick, you be a chick online. And it's great. That freedom was sort of celebrated. Um, uh, it's not so fun anymore. Uh, and uh, I think requiring people to, uh, to um, represent themselves with their real-world identity, it's ultimately, it's where we're going to end up. Um, yeah. I hope so. Is that it? Okay. Thank you so much. Lev Grossman and Dick Meyer. Thank Thanks you for all. coming. Thank you.